This is KNX In-Depth. Good afternoon. I'm Brian Payne. I'm Charles Feldman. What L.A. City Council members Gil Cedillo and Kevin DeLeon are doing, you know, by refusing to resign in the face of intense pressure over their use of racist language on a secret recording, is becoming a common tactic in American politics. Elected officials who hope they can ride out the storm of controversy and that voters aren't really paying much attention. So we'll go in depth. And, by the way, the man who maybe pioneered that tactic, Donald Trump, has officially been issued a subpoena to testify in front of the House January 6th committee. But will the former president actually ever have to answer questions under oath about that fateful day? And sticking with the former president, new reporting shows that Trump was keeping some heavyweight intelligence materials among his stash of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. So we will go in-depth on that as well. Do you work for Twitter? If so, you might want to brush up that LinkedIn resume. Elon Musk says he will essentially gut Twitter's workforce with plans to lay off about 75 percent of Twitter employees. So what will a hollowed-out Twitter look like on the user's end? A recommendation by a CDC committee that school districts, universities, camps, and more add the COVID vaccine to the list of required immunizations has lit a new fire under the anti-vax crowd. And why are thousands Thousands of young kids across the country landing in hospitals with what amounts to the common cold virus. So we start with politicians digging in. Sarah Sadwani is a professor of politics at Pomona College. Thanks for being with us. So, you know, there was a time, I suppose, when politicians, if they were caught up in any kind of scandal, would uh, perhaps first try to hide it. But then if it became obvious, they would call it quits. But it does seem as if more and more politicians locally uh, in other parts of the country are just saying, you know, the heck with it. Uh, We can get away with it. Are they? Yeah, you know, I think this is such a great uh, topic to be thinking about, right, as we continue to hear calls for resignations. Kevin DeLeon has said, I'm not leaving. I've got two more years in my term. And I think this is something that we are seeing. Um, Certainly, we might look to the Virginia governor, Ralph Northam, who had had a scandal about pictures that had come out about him uh, in blackface some time ago, stayed, maintained his his career. Might even think about Ted Cruz, right, flying to Cancun in the midst of a devastating storm in Texas in which people were dying, people were without access to food, water, electricity, etc., who, you know, people were calling for his head as well, and he stuck it out and is still in his position today. I think one of the key differences here, though, is is whether or not the, 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 the offense that a politician has made is criminal in nature. We are not, uh, you know, we certainly know of criminal uh, acts that we've seen here in Los Angeles and in California. Of course, Mark Ridley Thomas, Jose Rizar, Mitch Englander, all being uh, accused um, of, of, of corruption and taking bribes. We might even think about Nixon going back some time. There's also sexual harassment scandals or, or sexual assault. You know, we've seen uh, politicians from Sacramento go down that way. So it's like Matt Debobne and Raul Bocanegra. Um, so I think when there's nothing necessarily criminal about it, and I think in this instance we would certainly fall into that category, it definitely hurt a lot of feelings. It definitely, um, you know, uh, has upset so many people so deeply, um, but not a crime. We in the media are guilty in this in that we cover the headline breathlessly for a couple of weeks, maybe a month, and then we move on to the next headline. And do you think that is what folks like Dalian are doing? They're waiting for us and just the buzz around town 
to eventually die off and move to the next big thing, and by which time it's gone and forgotten. They can just get on with uh, whatever they want to do. Well, it's certainly a possibility. Um, you know, certainly news cycles do change. We're on a 24-hour news cycle, so you, need, you, you all need more content <laughs> eventually. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, you know, I think there's also some disparities in terms of the, the kind of media attention these issues get. For example, just earlier this week, uh, Mayor of San Francisco, London Breed, African-American woman, uh, you know, made comments uh, racially you know, overtly racial about how Hondurans are all drug addicts. Um, she apologized and moved on. And, you know, no one is calling for her resignation. Um, no one's asking for her head on a plate. Is there maybe a double standard that, that is, is happening in the, well, in the, let, amongst let, advocates let, or let me, even amongst them? Okay, but, but let, me, let me suggest another possibility that I was just thinking mm-hmm. of as you were talking. Uh, and that is, I wonder if it's also that people have become more sophisticated, perhaps, in their understanding of human frailty, Uh, not to excuse uh, some of the alleged acts uh, that various politicians, including our own, uh, have been accused of. But I wonder if it is also that people over the years have sort of come to the conclusion that people are people, they make dumb mistakes sometimes, and uh, apart from criminal activity, which is a different different, uh, ballgame, that maybe people have just become a lot more forgiving. Well, I mean, you almost would hope that. (laughs) And I think that's probably true amongst Los Angeles voters. Um, You know, when I'm out talking to folks, I hear often from people who will say, you know, I hear conversations like that, too. I've been a part of conversations. I've stood up sometimes. Sometimes I haven't. I kind of understand. But I can't say that publicly because it's such a delicate topic. So I think there is there are some that certainly would believe that, right? That say, hey, you know what? These are, these are normal people, and these are, unfortunately, conversations that, that do happen. That being said, that's not what we're hearing from advocates on the ground. You know, the town hall last night, for example, we heard no apologies will ever be accepted. Mike Bonin said we will only entertain an apology to his son 10 to 12 years from now. Um, <laughs> you know, there's, there's no olive branch. There's no room to make amends, so it seems um, that's a pretty harsh kind of uh, tactic to take towards anyone. Um, But, you know, nonetheless, that's where the advocates lie. I think I question whether or not voters lie there. You know, one of the things from last night's town hall that had occurred, what that I noticed was, you know, there was an in-studio audience, there was a group of black voters, there was a group of predominantly Korean Americans and Oaxacans, people that were talked about in the tapes. What there wasn't was a group of Latino voters. Um, and I'd be really curious to hear what, what Latino voters have to say about this situation. Mm-hmm. Sarah Sedwani, professor of politics at Pomona College. Professor, thank you. Well, there's one thing that most people don't want to get, and that's a subpoena. Well, President Trump, former President Trump, now has one. We'll talk about that when we come back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Brian Ping. I'm Charles Feldman. A little later in the second hour of our program, a respiratory virus that's basically the equivalent of the common cold is coming in hot this fall season, landing thousands of young kids in hospitals. And before that, Elon Musk puts thousands of workers at Twitter on notice. By a tweet, probably. Maybe. Yeah, right now, though, the latest chapter in the Trump legal war is officially underway. 
After promising to do so, the House Select Committee on the January 6th insurrection has now subpoenaed the former president, ordering him to testify under oath. But will Trump, ever the master of legal delays, ever actually sit for questioning? Jenny Durkin is former mayor of Seattle just before that. She served as the U.S. attorney for the Western District of Washington. Jenny, thanks for being with us. Uh, I don't think even the people in the committee think that Donald Trump is ever going to appear before them. Do you think? You know, I think that the committee went through this effort hoping that it would happen. I think that it was late in the day. And, you know, if Congress changes hands, I think it's pretty unlikely he will sit for a sworn dip. Not impossible, but but unlikely. Um, but I think that, you know, he has shown that he is the master of legal delay. And he can run out the clock for just a couple more months. Well, Election Day is even uh, sooner than that. But even so, even if he uh, is compelled, his legal team is just going to say, don't do it. I think that's correct. I think it was important for them to do because he, is, he does have information that no one else has. And in these cases, traditionally, you kind of will work your way up the ladder and save the, the largest person for last so that you have the most information. So I, I think that's not unusual. What's unusual is... You know, it's a committee of Congress and not a lawsuit and not a grand jury investigation. And so there's a time when the clock stops. I've heard uh, two different commentaries on the timing of this, and, and I'm curious which one uh, you subscribe to. On the one hand, there are those who are saying the committee made a mistake. They should have called him right at the very beginning, lock him, in effect, into a story, and then if they're able to debunk that story through months of witness testimony. And then there are those who are saying, no, it was better for them to do what they did, which was to gather all the evidence, get all this witness testimony, and now try to bring him in to answer questions. Which do you think would have been the better strategy? Well, I think we have to remember this is a committee in Congress, and their purpose was not to prosecute or to get liability like you would have in a lawsuit or a grand jury investigation. Their purpose was really to get information. And so your your job wasn't to get him and then debunk him. Your job was to get the information you could. And we learned so much information, hearing after hearing, as different people got encouraged to come forward that had they asked him questions at the beginning, they would have had an incredibly incomplete record. And so I think if the purpose was to get facts and to establish who was responsible, you couldn't start with him. And one factor to consider is that even if the former president did want to go up and talk, you know, fireworks, TV cameras everywhere in this you know, mid-November target date, it's a matter for, you know, for his interest, the people on his team, for him not to do it to protect him from himself. Because as we all know, he goes up there, he's, he, he is prone to stating falsehoods, uh, and that could really hurt him if he does that under oath. I think we've seen that. He's, he goes off script every time because he likes to write the script as he's talking. And he's got real legal jeopardy. This documents case at Mar-a-Lago, in many ways, um, you know, Al Capone, who was a famous gangster, and had broad-ranging conspiracies and murders and you name it. He was you know, the first kind of big criminal conspirator. They never got him on any of that. They got him on a tax charge. And Donald Trump's treatment of these documents might be the equivalent of that. And so his lawyers will not want him talking under oath at all. Now, I think for the committee, it's another important thing is, you know, often Donald Trump will say, no one asked me. They didn't let me give my side of the story. Well, the committee's now saying, come give your side of the story. And if he chooses not to, 
he can't use that as a defense. Well, and also, couldn't he have volunteered? Other people did. A hundred percent. And, you know, not many people would stand by the sidelines. And, and, you know, if you really believe in democracy and preserving the future of democracy, you would come say what you as the President of the United States believe needs to happen for the peaceful change of power. And he never, never offered that to the American public. Jenny Durkin, former mayor of Seattle and also a U.S. attorney for the Western District of Washington. Jenny, thanks for joining us. Well, it turns out that the kind of love letter from the dictator of North Korea to uh, President uh, Trump when he was president was the least of the classified documents kept stashed at Mar-a-Lago. More on that when we come back. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Charles Feldman. I'm Brian Ping. Later on, uh, on In-Depth, no less than Dame Judi Dench. You know, she played Queen Elizabeth herself. She's come out to criticize the new season of The Crown and how it portrays Princess Diana. So we'll talk about that show and uh, about the whole thing about drama versus documentary. And before that, by the way, the COVID vaccine debates they're back. Mm. Right now, though, new reporting shows that former President Donald Trump wasn't just keeping old keepsakes and innocuous materials at his stash of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. The Washington Post is reporting that Trump was hanging on to classified information on Iran's missile program and U.S. intelligence work aimed at China. Josh Rogan's a columnist for the Global Opinions at the Washington Post and a political analyst at CNN. And Josh, the words that keep going through my mind whenever we hear stories about the documents and what was found at Mar-a-Lago was... Those famous words of Louis XIV, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. Yeah, these are sensitive documents, but so what? I'm the president, I'm, you know, these are mine. I can do whatever I want with them, and to heck with all the consequences. And so is, this basically sounds like the latest iteration of that. Right. And to be clear, we don't know exactly what these documents are. We don't know what level of classification that they are. They don't know exactly what they told us or revealed or what might have been lost if they were compromised. But either way, it's horrendous because the sheer magnitude of the lack of security and lack of thoughtfulness and lack of norms and 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 legal protections and physical protections that were would normally be applied to all of these documents and it was just it's just so stunning and so unprecedented that it calls into question the president's commitment to protecting national security writ large which as we know was called into question so many other times before when he either blurted out or shared classified information in various other forms so you know when you think about that and then you add to the fact that mar-a-lago was such an open a uh, uh, mess during his presidency with people just streaming in and out and guests and members and spies, including spies from China who were roaming around for years in that building. Uh, it boggles the mind. And talking about the mind, I'm sure it's gone through yours, goes through many people's. Any notion on why would somebody want to keep some of the documents that he allegedly was keeping? For what purpose? Right. Well, I mean, getting inside of Donald Trump's mind is always a dangerous endeavor. But <laughs> from what we know, there were basically three different motivations. One was things that he thought were cool. Right. That was the Kim Jong Un letters. And uh, those are the things I'm actually worried the least about, to be honest with you, because, you know, what whatever Kim Jong Un was writing, I want to know that that's probably some funny stuff. You know, another one was just things that he thought were like he could use against his enemies. We're talking about like the Russiagate stuff or that things that he thought he could exonerate him uh, because he thought he could have the, the proof that could unmask his 
his adversaries, wherever he thought they were at the moment. And then the third were things that just got caught up in the mess because it was just a disaster because he didn't have a transition because he wasn't planning on leaving office because he wasn't he didn't want to leave the White House. So when he finally decided to leave, they're like, all right, throw everything into a bunch of boxes. We'll figure it out when we get there. You know what I mean? And if you combine those three motivations, I think you get your best guess at what we're looking at here. Yeah, here we are weeks later after the whole raid and we're still talking about new fines. So it, it stands to reason that we might have more of these stories coming up for more uh, revelations from his stash. Well, yeah, there'll be a, a trickle of leaks because the people who are you know behind the raids also want their reporters to keep the story alive. So they'll leak out bits and tiny bits of information you know, over long periods of time. Uh, but there's also going to be litigation, and there's and and I don't know that there'll be a criminal charge related to the documents, but it, I can't you can't rule it out either. And if that happens, then we're facing years of discussion of these documents. We're at the beginning of this thing, not the end. Do we know, do you know, historically, if other former presidents have done anything like this, take home these sort of yeah. documents? It's a, it's a really great question because, you know, I'm, you know, I I went back and talked to a lot of people from the Nixon era. And what what happened at that point was that, you know, people around Nixon, especially uh, Henry Kissinger, who was National Security Advisor and the Secretary of State, took tons of documents, including the transcripts of the, the secret conversations that were related to Nixon, really important stuff, and just absconded with them. And it was in the wake of that and a Supreme Court battle over those documents that the law was put in that made these documents the property of the government, not the president. Even so, you will find that throughout history, various presidents have made various arguments to keep various things. So it's not as if this is a, a clean cut thing where you can't take anything with you. The point here is that is there's always a process and there's always at least an argument and some way to at least contest it through the law or through you know, the archives or whatever. And the point with Trump, all of that broke down because he told the National Archives to go screw themselves. And that's why we're, we're in the situation we're in. I'm Josh Rogan, political analyst for The Washington Post and CNN. Josh, thanks. Uh, I love this tease, by the way. Elon Musk planning to launch a SpaceX-sized rocket through Twitter's workforce. Hmm. Even I want to that know about big. that. That sounds big. It does. 75% yeah. big. Yeah, it's, it's, it sounds really important. Uh, we're also going to talk about this. There's a controversy, believe it or not, about The Crown, you know, the Netflix right. series. And have you? do you watch it? I do. You Excellent do. show. This is KNX In-Depth, along with Brian Ping. I'm Charles Feldman. Elon Musk probably won't be a popular guy in the Twitter break room after he takes over the social media giant. Musk told prospective investors in his $44 billion deal to buy Twitter that he plans to lay off about, get this, 75% of the workforce there. Facing pressure to ramp up profits and perhaps in an effort to remake the company in his image, Musk will quickly look to cut costs. Now, there were indications, of course, that Twitter was headed for layoffs, with or without Musk. The company has struggled to remain profitable. But if, if Musk uh, guts the workforce, what will the Twitter experience be like for all of us who use it? Karen North directs the Annenberg Program for Online Communities at USC. Karen, thanks for being back with us. I know one of the concerns that I read about the other day is that Twitter, which doesn't do a very good job as it is uh, of policing things like mis- and disinformation, that that will become even more of an issue if you eliminate all of these positions. Is that a concern? I mean, it, you know, if he, I don't believe that he's going to cut that many positions and then keep it at that small of a crew. 
Um, you know, and, and by the way, I think there's some denials today about whether or not this, these cuts are actually going to happen. But I think that if he cuts that deeply, he's going to then rebuild the company, you know, rehire with people who are more in line with his business model. But it is true that, I mean, you know, most of the employees are on the engineering side. They're probably between like a thousand and maybe 1500 people who are full or part-time moderation people, the people who look at content. But it, you know, it, it, I think he's more likely to change the standards, to change the, um, the code of conduct, and then, then to just drop the moderation the way some people fear. We all know he's prone to hyperbole. I mean, weren't we supposed to be on Mars by now, according to like some of his timelines a few years? But but anyway, yeah, so 75%, like you said, that's probably not going to happen. But uh, he is going to make some significant changes, you know, uh, assuming this becomes official and he does take over. But what would that mean? I mean, what his definition of fairness is might not be that of many of Twitter's current users, and he could lose a big subscriber or a user base because of that well i mean yes and no time time will tell by the way i i don't think i can have a conversation about elon musk without using the word hyperbole either so you know kudos to you for that one um i i think that you know if you look at the profitability of twitter over time when you know when it's more contentious when you know when donald trump was there it was more profitable so i'm sure he's looking at that he's adamant about doing something about the bots and not just the like you know, the fake account bots, but also he's always been concerned about the spam bots and about the crypto scams that are done by bots on Twitter. So I think that they're, you know, he's sort of the good, the bad and the ugly of the taking over. But I think that um, you you forget that when we talk about Twitter, we talk about it like it's a big social network like Facebook or Instagram. But in fact, it's more you guys. It's a news network. It's a network of people who communicate with their own audiences and they come to Twitter to get a news story, an update, a quote, a heads up, a, you know, a source. And so it's it's a very different model, I think, than pe- the way people usually discuss it. And I think you're right about that. But then the question becomes, after he spends all this money to buy it, who then is his audience for the future? Who are his customers? Well, I think that his customers are, I mean, like I said, I think that people misrepresent, and I think even Twitter misrepresents its own target market. They, you know, they say that about two thirds of all the um, verified users on Twitter are journalists, and a lot of others are not journalists, but they are people who speak to their own audiences. So I think that really, you know, if 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 you and I were to own Twitter, we would start thinking, well, how do we rework the business model, revenue model, and the information, or you know, the content model, um, knowing that this is mostly people trying to tell stories and give information to people who want the information so that they can talk about issues. And I think that that's really more where Twitter needs to be heading, is just embracing that. That's Karen North, director of the Annenberg Program for Online Communities at USC. Thank you, Karen. And coming up next, a recommendation by a CDC committee is reigniting a fierce debate over COVID vaccine mandates. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Ping, along with Charles Feldman. 
CDC Advisory Committee voting to uh, vote in favor of adding the COVID vaccine to the recommended immunization schedule for kids and adults. Now, this is a recommendation only, but it is guidance used by school districts, universities, camps and the like when they complete lists of required inoculations. But even as a recommendation, it has reignited fierce fighting over vaccine mandates. Now, the CDC routinely tweaks its immunization guidance, so it's no surprise that the COVID vaccine was added to the list. And, of course, schools have long required all sorts of different vaccinations of young students. Dr. Nathaniel Beers is Executive Vice President for Community and Population Health at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Dr. Beers, by now we do have a COVID vaccine that resembles your more traditional vaccines, like what you would get for the flu or measles, uh, things like that. And they don't have to uh, use the, uh, the, the you know, young mRNA uh, technology that uh, kept so many people from you know, fighting back against mandates. So do you think that that probably propelled the CDC to say, OK, yeah, it, it's time to put this recommendation forward? Certainly that's a piece of it. I think that now that it's available for all children ages six and up, it, it made it much easier to make that recommendation as part of a normal schedule. In addition, it's an important piece in making sure that uh, children who are insured by Medicaid or underinsured uh, are able to get uh, the vaccine through the Vaccines for Children program, uh, because that is part of the way that uh, the Vaccines for Children program determines which vaccines are covered through that system. And so it's important to make sure that all kids are going to be able to have access for it when they need it, and that it's part of the conversation through every uh, well-child visit, as, as other vaccines are as well. And as we mentioned, the CDC's actions are uh, advisory. They're not mandatory. But how common is it for schools in particular to follow that CDC guidance? Certainly there's a range, right? And so there are vaccines that um, most school districts require, certainly when you think about polio or measles, mumps, and rubella, chickenpox vaccines, those have traditionally been required by schools. Uh, but there are vaccines that, uh, like the flu vaccine, uh, where it is a recommendation in many school districts that children get it, but it's typically not a requirement uh, in order to attend school. And so what we don't know is how schools are going to uh, take this piece and think about it on the local level about how they can improve uh, the ongoing safety uh, for kids in schools. When you impose the mandate, and as we've seen over the last two and a half years, we've seen an acceleration of parents pulling their kids out of public school over these kinds of requirements, putting them in private school or homeschooling them. Do you think that at this point of the game, uh, school districts, public school districts might be a little more mindful of that before they rush to say, okay, the CDC says they recommend it, we're going to mandate it. Do you think they're going to hit the brakes on that and, and, and weigh the factors because of what we've seen these last couple of years? I think that certainly, you know, has to be part of the calculation that schools are making. But I also think that part of what uh, schools need to do is really think about the population that they're serving and who's at risk. Uh, and also uh, note that in some school districts, actually mandates actually helped improve the vaccination rate here in Washington, D.C. When it became mandated for student athletes, we saw large numbers of adolescents go through uh, the vaccines last fall and get immunized. Uh, at rates that were much higher than the general population so that they could participate uh, in the athletics. And so there is some variability in the way communities, communities respond, and certainly that is part of the calculation that schools have to make as they think about this. But the priority for schools is making sure that every child can be healthy and ready to learn. And so if the COVID vaccine fits into that uh, criteria to make sure that kids can be safe and ready to learn, 
then that's part of what they need to do as they think about uh, serving the students in their population. I'm curious, by the CDC making this recommendation, it, it sort of becomes the standard of care, doesn't it? Uh, and if that's the case, can a school district uh, or even a, a, a private uh, pediatrician uh, get into hot water for not insisting that a child be vaccinated? Uh, I don't think so. Uh, again, as I noted, right, the flu vaccine has been standard of care for many decades now, but it is not required by um, uh, most school districts. And in fact, uh, part of the recommendations are to make sure that pediatricians are regularly talking about the opportunities that ch- uh, parents and families have to get their children vaccinated. And, and certainly for a variety of different reasons, families some take, make different decisions. Uh, and while as pediatricians, we want every child to be safe, uh, and get uh, vaccinated as much as uh, uh, makes sense for that individual child. Uh, there are a variety of reasons that families uh, make decisions to opt out of certain vaccines. Uh, and uh, we as pediatricians continue to work and support them and know that that decision may change with time. And so we know that uh, with the COVID vaccine, uh, people have had uh, different responses at different times. And, and our job as pediatricians is to make sure that families have the science and they know the data and they're making the best decision for them and their family and their child in particular. How are we doing as far, well, the new school year, uh, how are we doing as far as getting these very young children immunized? Because, you know, the rates haven't been as high as many other age groups. Yeah, so this, the, the rate of uh, vaccination for children under the age of uh, uh, five in particular has been really uh, much slower than we'd like, but certainly under age 12, we've seen that. There's a lot of regional variability. We did experience the same uh, phenomenon that we saw across all age groups, which is there is a group of parents and families who are ready to get vaccinated the moment it's approved. There are families who have some more reluctance, are looking to have conversations with their pediatricians or take more time. And then there are those who are much more reluctant and, and not willing to get vaccinated at this point. And we continue uh, to work with those families and provide them with education and, and conversations with them uh, to make sure that they know all of the uh, up-to-date data on uh, the coronavirus and, and the vaccine uh, so that they can make the best decision uh, in the moment and, and recognize that that may change with time. Dr. Nathaniel Beers, Executive Vice President for Community and Population Health at Children's National Hospital in Washington, D.C. Doctor, thank you. Coming up in the next half hour of In-Depth, a respiratory virus is hitting American children hard this fall, and it's not COVID. And Netflix is forced to remind viewers that The Crown is, in fact, a drama and not a documentary. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Brian Payne. I'm Charles Feldman. We'll uh, spare you the full scientific name of this virus, but it is commonly known as RSV. And that's the thing. It's a fairly common respiratory virus that before the COVID fam- uh, pandemic set in would routinely make the rounds in the fall and winter months without causing too much damage. But this year, RSV seems to be hitting children especially hard, and it's catching doctors and parents off guard. Now, some hospitals are busier now treating young RSV patients than they were during the worst days of COVID. Dr. Richard Malley is a pediatric infectious disease physician at Boston Children's Hospital. Doctor, what is behind this? Does this have something to do with maybe the long tail of COVID because we were all cooped up for so long? Now we're back out in the world and all these nasty viruses have made a comeback. Is this just one of those that have um, worked its way into our system? 
Well, yeah, I mean, it's certainly a very attractive, biologically plausible interpretation of what's going on right now. We've had, you know, children who are especially susceptible to RSV, uh, but also to 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 the flu and and to other viruses who were cooped up, as you say, who were sort of shielded a little bit from one another and from uh, uh, other adults who all of a sudden are now freer, fortunately, to move around. And a lot of the viruses that they may have otherwise uh, acquired over the last two years, uh, they are now sort of getting an onslaught of uh, because they also have not generated the ongoing immunity uh, to these viruses over the past couple of years. So that's a very likely explanation for what's going on. Okay, so how concerned should parents be and what do they have to be on the lookout for? You know, I think in in general, um, these are viruses, unlike COVID, uh, that we know a lot about and we know what they can do. We know uh, who is susceptible to them. And in the case, for example, of flu, we also have a vaccine. So one obvious uh, immediate thing that parents can do is to get their children vaccinated against the flu. Uh, that is one intervention that I think uh, certainly is very safe and can also help prevent um, the important, uh, even though rare, occurrence of severe influenza disease in children. So that's one thing they can do. The other thing, of course, is that even though we don't necessarily want everybody to be um, living shielded the way we were before uh, we had a little bit more help with vaccines and other measures for COVID. At the same time, I think what the pandemic has taught us is that there's a very effective way to avoid infections uh, when we live in society. And one of them is to make sure that the people you hang out with are not sick at the time that you're hanging out with them. That doesn't avoid everything, but it certainly prevents a lot of infections. Uh, and that's something that parents should now keep in mind, that playdates and other activities with children who are sick, have runny noses, have a sudden onset of cough or other symptoms is probably something that should be avoided um, as it may have been necessary to avoid even before COVID. I pull up the CDC's definition and it says RSV, respiratory syncytial virus, is a common respiratory virus that usually causes mild cold-like symptoms. So why is it putting so many kids in the hospital? Well, you know, very young children, um, certainly children under a year of age and at some children with underlying conditions like prematurity or, uh, you know, cardiac uh, history. So, so children who have um, some form of congenital heart disease can really be very susceptible to this virus and it can make them very sick. Children who have asthma or reactive airways disease can also get more sick, if you will, than the average child. And I think one of the reasons potentially why we're seeing more children than we expected in the hospital right now with RSV is that instead of having seen those children on average at a certain rate over three years, they're now being concentrated in a shorter period of time because they did not get this virus a year before or even two years before that. And while getting RSV when you're one year old or when you're six months old, six month old doesn't necessarily give you long lasting immunity to that virus. We know, for example, that adults typically get a mild RSV infection every three years or so on average. 
when you suddenly take kids who have not had this infection over the last two or three years and expose them to this virus through normal living situations, you get a greater number of kids heading to the hospital. Yeah, I, I wonder also, doctor, to what degree there may be, for some parents anyway, a bit of an overreaction. Uh, you know, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, we now know that a lot of people who were, quote, hospitalized for COVID were actually hospitalized for other things and just happened to test for COVID. And I'm wondering if, if the whole pandemic may have made some parents a bit on edge. So at the first sign of a symptom, they're more prone to run to the hospital. Well, you know, that's it, it brings up an interesting point. I mean, that's a possibility, although we would never, we would assume that if, if somebody ends up going to the emergency room and gets admitted, they they did a good job, of course, of going to the emergency room in the first place. But But your comment is also very relevant because we are now testing more routinely for these viruses than we ever were before. Because for very good reason, we want to know if a child who comes to the hospital has SARS-CoV-2, the, the virus that causes COVID-19. We want to know that. It has very important implications for that child, for how we isolate the child from others, and so on and so forth. But in the context of doing that test, what we are also doing is we're testing for a number of other viruses because it's a it's basically the same procedure. You just swab the nose of the child and you can get instead of just whether or not they're infected with the virus of COVID, you can get five or six other viruses tested at the same time at no, no additional procedure on the child. And so we're, we are getting a difference in how we ascertain what is causing uh, the fever or other problems in children because of the greater availability of these rapid point of care tests that now include multiple viruses that we didn't test for before. And so we could test for them before, but we didn't. We didn't have the routine testing that we do now. And as a consequence, when your listeners, for example, look as you did at CDC reports of RSV rates or parainfluenza rates or rhinovirus rates, they have to take into account that if you test for it more, you will see more of it as well. Dr. Richard Malley, pediatric infectious disease physician at Boston Children's Hospital. Doctor, thank you. Well, when we come back, there are some people who are not amused about the crown. You're listening to KNX In-Depth. With Brian Ping, I'm Charles Feldman. The Crown Season 5 on Netflix, which focuses on the high-drama storylines of Princess Diana and then-Prince, now King Charles, has not even been released yet. It debuts early next month, but it already is generating controversy and criticism. for Controversy, maybe, is how they say across the pond for its portrayal of the British royals in the 80s and 90s. No less than Dame Judi Dench, who herself has played Queen Elizabeth and former British Prime Minister John Major, have called The Crown cruelly unjust and a barrel load of nonsense. So, to head off any confusion about whether The Crown is a documentary or a drama, Netflix has now added a disclaimer to remind all of us that the show is a fictionalized dramatization of historic events. Kate Arthur is editor-at-large at Variety. Kate, thanks for being with us. You know, it's kind of interesting, too, because, you know, even so-called history has an element of fiction in it, right? Because the, you know, history is written by those who conquer and not those who are conquered. So it's interesting that there's a need or perceived need to tell an audience that something is a fictionalized version. 
this is just the silliest, silliest thing. <laughs> and I'm bummed that Netflix caved. <laughs> I'm shaking my fist right now. Uh, it's just so dumb. I mean, so many things are based on a true story. And The Crown is a loving tribute to the royal family. I just don't even understand what is happening. Well, you think some of this has to do with the fact that things aren't really exactly rosy with the royal family right now. They've got an image to protect, and it's on assault from many sides. And so the, the emotions might be running high now, even over what as is a drama, not a documentary. They should be thrilled that The Crown is coming back next month. Uh, I mean, what what burnishes the royal family's legacy better than the crown um i it, it's just i i i see what your point is but honestly um peter morgan the creator of the crown who writes uh most of the episodes he loves the royal family and it, and uh i really think there's nothing that's done more for the royal family's reputation than the crown what? which is wonderful show. Yeah, I, I mean, what's sort of interesting, uh, again, I, I guess it speaks to to maybe the uh, naivete of, of people or the studios that produce stuff for people, is that a, a host of, of uh, programs and movies about all kinds of historical things. I mean, did anybody actually think that there's, I don't know, an historical record of what Napoleon actually said? I mean, we don't know. Exactly. I, it, 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 I guess, I mean, for Judy Dench, who, as you mentioned, played Queen Elizabeth and won the Oscar for her eight minute portrayal of Queen Elizabeth in Shakespeare in Love, uh, for her to lash out at the crown, uh, I, I found it to be very strange. I guess she just thinks that in the distant past, fictionalizing things is OK. Um, her point was that as things get closer to the present day, um, it gets trickier. And that's certainly true. But I I think the trick of it will be to make it seem less um, cheesy and, and, you know, with remove, obviously, like the history of the crown in the early years has been something that lots of people don't know. But as we move toward more recent events where this season is going to lead up to Diana's death, I think, I guess the the she's saying that people will really think it's true this time. But I, I just don't see that. And I think I think viewers are smarter than that. Yeah, is that what they're so upset about these actors and these these prominent figures? Uh, because this, they think that this show is trying to push a theory that's unproven. Uh, because there is still some mystery lingering over Diana's death and what exactly happened that night. And as far as these critics are concerned, you may as well just not even dare touching it. I don't know. I, I mean, they've what they've <laughs> said is that they're going to handle that, and I think that's coming next season, actually. But. I the build up to it will be uh, this season, but um, I think they've promised that they're going to handle it sensitively and and nothing on the crown has been outrageous or scandalous. It's just not a scandal mongering series. It's I think I think Judy Dench is just jealous. <laughs> She's she's mad that she wasn't cast. As, yeah. As yeah. Elizabeth. I mean, she, I, yeah, I, mean, she I don't know before, And maybe she's upset that she didn't get it now. 
Also, she is Dame Judy Dench. Ah, so yes. perhaps yeah. she feels she's uh she owes them a debt of uh, some kind. Yeah. I just I think this is such a non-troversy. I don't even know what <laughs> I, I like that it. word, non-troversy. But but back to your earlier point about Peter Morgan and that, that he's loves the royal family and has lovingly crafted what is such an exquisite show. Your point being, had it been in almost any other hands, it would not have been as fair. Sure. I mean, they've they've had like tabloid treatment for years and years, um, including from people who uh, are actually interviewing them. I mean, Prince Andrew's downfall was a real interview that he did with the BBC. Uh, and I think Martin Martin Bashir, who famously interviewed Princess Diana, is there's a character, uh, there's an actor playing him. So I imagine that we will see that interview acted out. I mean, but that is just that is a thing that happened and people will be looking up the real interview as they watch the show or afterward. And and those are documented things that happen, and I'm sure they will be uh, rendered very accurately. Yeah, you you know the other thing. You know the other thing, Kate. It occurs to me that 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 if the people who made the Crown, Netflix, if they actually stuck to historical fact, you know the the royal family in many ways is really boring. I mean, they, they don't live very exciting <laughs> lives. They they go around, they have a lot of parties and socials and teas. Uh, they ride horses, we know that. Uh, yes. But other than that, they don't exactly live action-packed, thrilling lives. No, and, and, and what we've seen on The Crown is a beautiful representation, um, not glossy, I wouldn't say, but uh, but like a sophisticated, nuanced rendering of real events, um, and uh, and you know, as we've seen this year, there have been endless ripped from the headlines television shows, uh, the dropout, um, uh, which told the story of Elizabeth Holmes and and Pam and Tommy and and things like that, and I, I don't think those those had to disclaim that they were fictional representations of real stories like as law and order said that these are these are every week these are uh any any uh any things that bear you know these are purely coincidentally you know things that are ripped from the headlines so i it, to me it's just it's just it, i can't believe it i and i'm sad that they caved mm. kate arthur editor at large at variety kate thanks for joining us well one thing is is definitely true in the crown there definitely is in england there's an England. Wait, wait, I'm actually, thinking of whether check. royals would ever let's be check. on Law and Order. That would be <laughs> strange. <laughs> they have to give the disclaimer before Law and Order because they got entangled in some. Uh. This has been KNX In Depth. He's Charles Feldman. I'm Brian Ping. We're back on Monday at 1 p.m.